Com. I am your host, Benjamin Phillips, and I am joined, as always, by Matt Waters. On this, our podcast, Nothing Ever Ends, a podcast about HBO's Watchmen series. Uh, how are you doing, Matt? You've just watched two episodes that have a, a hell of a lot of information. I'm mad at you. <laughs> why, why are you mad at me? Do you think Cal is Laurie's normal type? <laughs> and you sat there, and you watched me dance, and say, Oh, you're saying is she racist, you fucking asshole? <laughs> Uh, yeah, a lot's happened in the last few hours for me. I didn't think they would top. Hood of Justice was Angela's grandfather, a black man, a black bisexual man, was the first superhero ever. They have one-upped it. God is a black man, in some ways. Adrian has a very funny comment about that, but that's that's for probably 40 minutes from now. Yeah, hell of a couple of episodes. Yeah, they're both... Episode 7 kind of feels like the kind of episode on the leftovers where they've gone like, right, we've done a few too many centric episodes. We have to go back to the main cast and recontextualize a lot of stuff. But we were talking, it does feel in a lot of ways like an episode of Lost in that there is a definite central focus in that the episode is about Angela, but it uses that structure to also have time with Laurie and kind of push the plot forward a lot before episode 8 devolves into full-on solo character craziness for Mm. a full hour. But yeah, we are talking about episode 7 and episode 8 of the Watchmen TV series. Episode 7, An Almost Religious Awe, written by Stacey Yosei-Kufour and Claire Kaichel, directed by David Smell. You'll notice no Damon Lindelof on this episode. It's the only episode of the entire season that he is not credited Mm. in some way on. Mm. But I mean, you know, Uh, he's leading that writer's room. This is all... It's yeah, that, it's that is... thing with TV, like, I remember Dan Harmon responding to some troll who was, like, criticising an episode of Rick and Morty or Community that was written by a woman, and he's like, we all write all of them, you dumb fuck, so it's yeah. like, you know, but, like, yeah. Like, it's just, yeah. it's, it's how the WGA kind of, like, will come down on who wrote what episode, and you'll see it with some writers' rooms more than others, where I think Aaron Sorkin is someone who's, like, notorious for being credited on every single episode. I think there's... Yeah two episodes or something crazy of the first four seasons of the west wing that he is not credited yeah. on in some way matthew yeah. weiner of Mad Men is another one where he has a co-writing credit on pretty much every single episode because he does such extensive rewrites that mm. when it comes down to the the mediation or whatever they do to figure out who's got the credits it's kind of impossible to not have their name on it yeah. but obviously this episode Lindelof didn't come in to rewrite too much, presumably because he's very busy working on the next two episodes or whatever was happening at that time, because there's a lot of stuff that has to come together across these three episodes, particularly when you find out late in this episode that the entire end game of the show will be 
taking place over the next 12 hours. Yeah. And, like, I, I said to you before this that, like, it's got some of the, like, abstract, out-of-nowhere, metaphorical, random stuff that The Leftovers had, but because of the material this is drawing on and the the space this is playing in, it has to kind of intricately fit together more, so it all actually means something, as opposed to, like, oh, it could mean this. And, you know, you have said it a couple of times, Watchmen is like clockwork, and I think it makes sense for every... There are no loose ends in this show. There were no loose ends in the Watchmen book. Like, it all comes together and the 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 season-long question of why is all this shit happening in tulsa oklahoma fucking homer <laughs> is being answered with a shocking amount of like clarity and grace almost yeah <laughs> like, like the only thing left hanging at the end of watchman is what exactly does it mean that the new frontiersman got a copy of rorschach's journal yes like again, there's only two answers to that question. It's just which answer do you think they're going to go with? It's mm. do you think this completely destroys the world because everyone believes it, or do you think Doom no one clock. believes it, <laughs> <laughs> or do you think no one believes it whatsoever? Which Watchmen is... 2019. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> they are the Schrodinger's cat. They have chosen different avenues to go down. I find it very interesting. They both arrived at a similar idea for what John would do next, but I, I think we'll talk about that in a minute. But yes, yeah. Uh, but yeah, this episode does open with Doctor Manhattan, John Osterman, in a documentary uh, in <laughs> Vietnam about his involvement in the Vietnam War. His and name was John Osterman. <laughs> yeah, but it is very much kind of th- like looking at the impact that Doctor Manhattan had over Vietnam. As we pan out into a video store, and we find out it's VVN, uh, a kind of national holiday in Vietnam for their liberation or the the end of the Vietnam War, and yes. everyone dresses up as Doctor Manhattan. Yes, uh, and there's the like, there's the big cardboard cutout that is I don't know if Gibbons did it himself or it as a direct take from the the original art or what, but it is either way it is evocative of it or it literally is lifted from the Watchmen book. Yeah, and I love the shot in the documentary of Manhattan, kind of, they never show his face. Yes. Throughout the entire season, up until the reveal at the end of episode eight, yes. you don't see Manhattan's face at all. Yeah. I thought they were yeah. going to keep that up, to be honest, <laughs> uh, as a way around some potentially difficult stuff. But yeah, it's really well done, and, and you're sort of waiting for the pillows and the blankets to uh, take their opposite <laughs> sides. But no, as you said, it's in Vietnam. Uh, it was a young Angela trying to buy, well, she does buy the Sister Night tape, and it's like, this isn't a character she came up with, this is, she took inspiration from this, I don't know if you would even call it black exploitation because the PTpedia stuff gets into, like, this popular rise of black cinema in Vietnam, because a lot of African Americans moved from the USA to the 51st state of Vietnam to get away from the racism of America, so there is a, there is a larger-than-average black population there and cinema rose up from it and uh, yeah the sister knight character the the nun with the motherfucking gun as the uh, soundtrack title goes yeah it's it a fun little like origin story for her <laughs> yeah like her obsession with this the reason she likes it is because it looks like her mm. her parents being slightly dismissive of it because they think it's a bit too old because it, it probably is black exploitation cinema mm. it's just it's kind of seen as high art in a world in which presumably art is very different that the yeah. PTPT stuff covers like Roger Ebert's three-star review of the movie <laughs> and how it's not very available in America yeah as opposed to in Vietnam we get all this kind of context like everyone's celebrating outside Angela sees a kind of puppet show going on with 
Dr. Manhattan causing the surrender of all the Vietnamese troops. I love living in America, playing in the background of this as well. Like this, <laughs> this big like tourist trap market with all the Manhattan merch everywhere. But yeah, whilst watching this puppet show, someone picks up a bag that's being left down by the side of the puppet show, and Angela goes to speak to her parents. If well, they had let her buy that tape, she would be dead. Yes. Because they're like, look, you can't have it. People in masks, you can't trust... People who wear masks are are dangerous, Angela. Because this is Will's son, who scared him as a child. While, uh, you know, he was a very violent man, wearing a mask and everything. And he was... all of that. And uh, so she goes to take the tape back. And while she's taking it back, her parents get blown up. I was saying it's a very fun origin story for her, and then I should have said, until it's suddenly not fun at all. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the classic superhero trope of her parents taken away from her in very gritty fashion. It's just her trauma does not extend out to a hatred of the Vietnamese people. Yeah. She, she does, in some way, she very sensibly turns it towards Dr. Manhattan, is the cause of it, up until she meets Dr. Manhattan. It, but it is one of those things where normally you get your Joe Chill. But no, it's it's like th- this is what turns it into the vendetta to stop crime. And it doesn't feel like that exactly. Obviously, Angela does get her revenge against the person who kills her parents in oh, a very yeah. roundabout way, which inspires her to become a cop. But it isn't in the same way that you normally get in these superhero stories, despite this being an incredibly drenched in superheroic origin tropes. That's dead parents trope. <laughs> But yeah, after the explosion, Angela wakes up and we are once again in Lady True's compound. She's still got that fuck-off massive IV drip in her arm that is dripping. Well, is it... This is the thing. I, at first... So when you... I mean, I know the answers now, but... Well, some of them. When we saw it in Bian's arm, that was very clearly an IV drip. But Angela's is not putting something in her. It's taking something out of her. It is flushing... Well, I guess it's sort of a, like, two-way... Like, it's circulating between her and, <laughs> she believes, Will. But we'll see it is not Will at all. But yeah, it, it's, it looks different to what is going into Bian, and that will make sense in a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, Bian, they're putting stuff into here. They're trying to remove something out of Angela's system. Yes, um, so de- I do, detangle I do... her memories from Will's, and, and the fact that yes. she's having her own memories again means it's working. I do love that Lady True's like her entire like we've had this conversation so many times because you keep waking up getting the last time we had the conversation and the fact that they've somehow worked out a way to uh, we we know that they've worked out how to put memories in but the fact that one of the memories is just a commercial or like a terms and conditions thing explaining how nostalgia works that smacks of this drug is now illegal but we've still been working on it because it needs to be part of the therapy to get rid of it, you know? <laughs> like an infomercial for, they call it pneumodialysis, <laughs> which is great. Don't ever fucking do that to me again. That's what you said last time. <laughs> As always, Regina King is really good in the scenes where she gets to kind of be a bit... Feisty. Is, is, I don't know. Feisty. <laughs> Yeah, she has to be. She has to be a bit feisty, which is yeah. fun. And as always, Hong Chao is a very good counterpoint. Like I think the three kind of lead female performances in this show all mm. play off each other very well, and it's a shame they're not in as much together as they could be. But when you have any two of them together, it's just an incredibly potent pairing. I'd love on to screen. see them having a, uh, as it were, a three-way argument because they, yeah, they all come from different headspaces and they bounce off each other incredibly well. 
True is great. A very sort of magnetic performance, and you aren't quite sure if you should like her or not. <laughs> I mean, you lean towards not, because there's clearly some wahaha business going on, but then there's a a humour that she doesn't intend, and there is a tragedy to her as well. Yeah, she's fucking great. Yeah, but from here we cut out. So the compound where Cal has come to try and see Angela. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, Cal, then. Cal. <laughs> I have written his name so many fucking ways in this that I've got no idea what the best way to refer to him as for the rest of this is. Cal. Cal. Cal for this episode. It's dangerous for Cal to be near the Millennium Clock, Benjamin. (laughs) Is it? (laughs) But yeah, I, I love that they just very casually bring out the hologram device. Yes. Like, Bianca has a conversation with him and says, like, can't come inside. Or, like, all these different reasons. And so he kind of gives up and goes to try and find Blake. Yes. Who is sat outside waiting for Jane Crawford to arrive home on her horse Mm. so that she can have a conversation about what she's found out from Angela being under the influence of nostalgia. Yeah, and she's playing back the tape where it's mentioned in the PTpedia file for that episode that Angela spoke aloud every word we heard in the flashbacks and it's again a thing of you don't need to read the peterpedia stuff and i'm sure i don't know would you say a third of the people maybe even knew it existed or read it <laughs> like yeah or... i mean I, it, it depends how invested you think people are i do yeah. think this show had a very active community okay. uh, and i think i think in a lot of ways to something like westworld like a lot of the twists and reveals were true spotted beforehand like oh cal is who cal turns out to be yes. and <laughs> Oh, did did people see this coming a long time before? I think, I don't think it was as widespread as the Hooded Justice one. Oh, people called that as well. Yeah. (laughs) Hooded Justice was definitely the one that was kind of like on the forefront of people's minds, just because of the focus of Hooded Justice in the early episodes. But then it's also not like Westworld, where everyone guessed where the season one was going months and months in advance from episode two and it kind of completely defangs the eventual reveal like watchmen when they get to the reel of of who cal is and who hooded justice is the show kind of moves very quickly on from there and it's not played as we've blown your mind and completely recontextualized the entire show Well, well yeah that was the thing with westworld like as I started hearing these theories, I was like, that's so fucking cool. Let me see where they go with it. And they go precisely nowhere with it. Where they go... Well, I haven't seen series two and three, but as in in series one, where they go with that reveal. Where they go with the reveal is just the reveal. And then they yeah. have nothing else. So it's like, oh, I was, I had this moment seven episodes ago, guys. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. It's like, it, like they have a 25-minute monologue where they explain the plot reveal hmm. that you've read on the internet for seven weeks before this. Yeah. And you're like... Oh, there's no added... There's nothing here that helps the characters. You've just done a plot thing, whereas both of the reveals that are dropped through this are very much based in character interactions and changing how characters react to each other, which is what makes it land so much better. Oh, yeah. And, like, you know, we get a whole episode about the reveal and it makes... It's beautiful and it adds to it. And, yeah. While Laurie's waiting to go in, she speaks to Petey, who has gone to... Looking Glass's house found all the dead 7k. There's another guy there. I don't know if we're supposed to know. The, the one of them's missing his mask. Yes. Is, so, is what he says. I so don't five... know if we're supposed to know who that guy is, because they do show you a face, but I didn't really recognise him. I think you're just supposed to get from that that he's stolen a 7th Calvary mask. Ah, uh, okay. Gotcha, gotcha, <laughs> gotcha. He also has new Frontiersman copies in his home. 
So uh, there's your here's your next gen Rorschach. Uh, is yes, and, he, and I think I think there's a copy of Fog Dancing in there as well somewhere. I think a lot of characters have Fog Dancing on them throughout the course of the show. Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, I, I think, feel I'm th- going to have a lot of fun rewatching this show at some point. <laughs> it's a very deeply layered show that is very rewarding to rewatch. I watched most episodes twice because I would watch them at. 3am or whenever they were airing in the UK and I would watch them again later on the day with my partner just because it was one of those ones where the internet was so alive with conversation about the day that I couldn't did you turn to her and say, do you think Cal is uh, Laurie's normal type? Or... No, I wasn't, because we weren't recording a podcast in which me dropping those kind of hints would be amusing to the audience. I hope that's been fun for everyone who's already seen the show, <laughs> to listen to me dance like a, like a fool. Anyway, Laurie... Like a puppet on a string. <laughs> I'm aware of the strings. Yeah, yes. so Laurie goes to visit Jane and kind of gives her the entire speech like how Judd's killer was black and he was actually the first ever superhero and how that massively influenced all superheroes. We get that kind of laid out quite plainly. And also how she's like, I think your husband was involved in something called Cyclops, which is a racist organization. I love uh, this. I love that Laurie is, is too cool for school. Like she's like, I'm like, she'll say it in a minute. I'm sick of all the silliness. Like I'm the only adult in the room. I've solved all of this shit. And she's hitting her with all these accusations and, and bombs and everything. And then she is just like, yeah, well, that was the plan, but uh, president... Yeah, she, she, she completely nails that Joe Keane has been planning all of this to eventually end up as president of the United States. <laughs> he's he's put pit the 7th Calvary and the police force up against each other to come off as some kind of hero who's completely changed how everything goes to yep. become president. And Jane just goes like, I mean, that was the plan, but suddenly president seems like small potatoes. Yeah, and Laurie... It kind of adds a layer to Laurie, where you get the sense, to a degree, a lot of her shit is pre... She's gone through it all in her head ahead of time. Because when she's genuinely surprised, she doesn't suddenly come out with something witty or or anything like that. She is genuinely like, huh? What? You know? What the fuck? Yeah, and it... it... <laughs> It kind of gives this idea that like this is all a persona that she is putting on, and she's meticulously thought out this com- this confrontation ahead of time. Yeah, she she thinks it's just Judd involved. She doesn't think the wife could be involved, which mm-hmm. is a potential blindside on her part. Or she doesn't think they're going to be quite as open about it. Like she knows supervillains and they like to talk. Instead, Jane's immediate response is. I'm going to bust out a secret trapdoor remote. Oh, <laughs> fucking hell. I love that it doesn't work right. Jesus. Someone's been watching the Mission Impossible films. I, I think my immediate reaction was like, is that supposed to make her head explode or something? Like, because it's such a, like a, because Laurie's immediate reaction is like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. And then she falls into the floor and like, this is, as I put in my notes, proper supervillain shit. As, yeah. as Ozymandias <laughs> is so very keen on saying, I am not some Republic, Republic supervillain. Yeah. But this is very much the Republic supervillain stuff, yeah. where there's secret trapdoors, and we're going to get the villain monologuing about his plan later on in this episode. So good. And, and as you said, like this thing being rubbish, part of it being... How often are you going to fucking use this thing? <laughs> like, it, it's, it maybe it worked when they first had it installed, but yeah, insane. And then she just goes, So Laurie Blake just stopped by. You want me to kill her or what? 
like just so casual about it and this is the what second lead of the show and yep. uh yeah the ptpedia files will make it sound like maybe laurie's already dead i don't know but we'll see we will see but from this we got back to angela still recovering from whatever drugs have been injected into her system where bian has decided to do some kind of my, I, my she dissertation. Explains it as, <laughs> yeah she explains it as rage suppression within social cohesion which obviously angela is suppressing a whole lot of rage mm. but she's kind of throwing these cards up and saying which which person do you trust more which woman seems more frightened which woman seems angrier mm. yeah like uh, no, no one flies a kite by themselves so this man isn't <laughs> trustworthy <laughs> yeah i think it's like empathy and rage suppression and social cohesion yeah so like you know acting nice for a better time i guess is, yes. is the thing there and then she's just starts hitting her with all these there's like sinister music playing underneath this conversation. It's like, it's a little girl. She is no threat whatsoever. And yet we have this very tense confrontation. And like, she's saying, she's asking her in this innocent, sweet voice, like about lying to her kids and like, why be a cop if you are worried about, you know, them getting killed if they find out or whatever. Like it, it's, it's very menacing in a, in a very different way to how a lot of characters are menacing in this show. Obviously, this conversation does trigger a, a flashback mm-hmm. for Angela, where we get the revelation of two Vietnamese cops kind of rocking up to the orphanage that she's been thrown in, painting little uh, with a man dolls, <laughs> uh, with a man in the back seat who is the puppeteer from the bombing. They make Angela ID him, and she kind of she wants to go with them to see it. <laughs> she says, "Can I listen?" <laughs> And then the cop uh, proceeds to say, when you grow up, come find me, and gives her a little badge. And she smiles and finds her so happy, and then you just hear a gunshot in the background, because that's how yeah. the police do things in Vietnam, is terrorists just shoot in the street, mm. or behind some dumpsters, as it seems to be. But yeah, like this is this is Angela's, like, her moment where she finds her Joe Chill or whatever, except another person takes it away from her, and she sees it as being the how powerful and good the law force is that they've they've taken this man off the streets or whatever. Yeah, just like that, he's gone. Uh, uh, but from there, we, we come back to Bian, and Bian immediately goes, like, oh, whose memory did you just experience? Because obviously, like, her experiencing her own memories is a sign that she's doing well, but Bian then takes this as like the op- an opportunity to kind of like explain that she's worried about her own memories in that she frequently has dreams that she's an old woman. Yes, all but and... confirming what we speculate. Well, you know, but what I was speculating about before that, like, uh, my first instinct was Lady True is such a narcissist, she would make a clone of herself. But then, you, as the Peterpedia files point out, that like her mother is called Bian, and you said, well, why would she name her clone after her mother instead? Uh, she has cloned her mother and we'll find out why in a moment but yeah this all but confirms that before it's actually confirmed we do get an a plus vite transition with with the stained glass windows but we'll cover the both the fight scenes at the end of yeah at the end of this as is my pleasure (laughs) as is your pleasure you get to try and figure out what's going on there i think you've got most of the pieces now yeah i think it's pretty clear yeah (laughs) which Uh, means it isn't (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we cut to Angela and Lady True eating a meal together. Lady True is very pointedly bringing up Cal's accident and yes. how how total amnesia is incredibly rare outside of a soap opera. Yes. 
<laughs> Forgetting all of his life before and everything. Yes. Yeah, well, like, we, we, the accent has come up a couple of times, like uh, in the episode where Cal and Laurie have their have their meeting. Uh, Angela's very interested to find out whether or not Laurie was asking about the accident or whether or not asking about anything before the accident. It's quite a subtle breadcrumb earlier on. Yes, especially when she asked that, did she know who Laurie like fully was? I don't. I, I, I can't remember fully the timeline of that episode, but yeah, it's something that like, it wasn't a total what what accident, but it's something that like, it was somewhere in my mind, but it wasn't something at the front of my mind. So when she said yeah. accident, I was like, oh, oh yeah, okay, cool, and that is. Uh, I don't think I guessed at that point, but because she also said, you know, she confirms that Bianca is a clone of her mother, and she says how I'm about to achieve my life's work. She said, like, so sue me if I want my parents to be there when it happens. She's like, oh, so is your father here as well? And she says, he will be. Mm. And and that strike, given her obsession with Dr. Manhattan, I guess the, the chord we're plucking at here is either Manhattan is True's father or True delusionally believes that he is her father. And uh, I'm sure we'll find out which one it is soon. <laughs> I'm sure we will. I think maybe it's, it's the maybe second it's, one. Maybe it's both. Maybe it's neither. Hmm. Schrodinger's father. (laughs) (laughs) And then obviously, like, we get all these hints about what the clock exactly is going to do. What is the Millennium Clock's reason for existence Mm. and all the rest of it. But more interestingly, we cut to the fantastic villain monologue of the season with (laughs) with Laurie chained up. Uh, She gets to find out that the church is a set I believe she can see in the background. And, And Joe Keane does his whole speech of how the Seventh Cavalry or the Cyclops, we're not racist, we're about restoring balance. It's extremely difficult to be a white man in America right now. That's so fucking good, because that is so... <laughs> so perfect. We're not racist, but here's a racist thing to say, or here's a profoundly tone-deaf thing to say. And like, Yeah, like, the, the idea that we've given money to people who probably should be owed money for atrocities that have been done to them, but it's coming out of taxpayers' pockets, and I'm not getting money now, so therefore it's unbalanced. I mean, I feel some of what they're saying is, I don't know, are they going to kill a select number of minorities until it is in perfect balance? Or I, I don't know what the shit they're planning. But I, I don't know exactly. Obviously, the show only runs one more episode. <laughs> yeah. We don't get to see the full extent of whatever Keane's plan is to do if he were to ever get. And yet they're less frustrating than the Guilty Remnant. <laughs> <laughs> But the thing is, like, there's, there's some, the guilty remnant are so difficult to kind of put real world emotions on because this is a world in which something, or the, the leftovers world is some something where something so unimaginable happened. Mm. Uh, even even if coronavirus were to kill off two percent of the world's population, mm. it would there would be a reason there. We would be able to process our grief and have a real world explanation based in science. Whereas in the leftovers universe, there isn't that. And it's so fundamentally unexplainable that it would cause a kind of PTSD or some kind of nihilism within its people. In this show, they very firmly couch, even though something so incredibly like awful happened in the form of the squid and the amount of people that it killed and the psychic trauma that it inflicted upon the world. The thing that these people are rallying against is institutional racism, which is something that exists here and is something that is very understandable to anyone who can 
read a book about yeah. it. Yeah, or just be alive. Or just, or just, or just be alive. I'm, I, I kind of have. We kind of have to say there are some people out there who do not think institutional racism exists yeah, in the world that we live in nowadays. Yeah, but they're fucking idiots, so that's fine. Like, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I, I've read through many a racist timeline and thought about the many ways I want to tell them to go fuck themselves, only to just like, oh, forget this and just leave there. They don't. Around. They don't care about what your opinion I, is. I know. Just, like, you can't they want you to spread their their hate screed and not listen to a rebuttal. Yeah, it, it's fucking great stuff. And also, I like the touch that Looking Glass's music is playing under this scene when mm. uh, Keen is... And I was like, for a second, I was like, have they, like, indoctrinated Looking Glass and they're gonna make him do his thing to Laurie? Uh, but no, it's just sort of to flip that thing on its head and, I don't know, just, yeah, two characters opposite each other and, and yeah. a racially fueled conversation and everything. James Walker's an actor I always enjoy and stuff, and him getting to be kind of the full hammy villain is mm. a great look for him. And what are they uh, trying to do, Ben? <laughs> what are they trying to do? Oh, they're trying to steal Dr. Manhattan's powers so that Joe Keane can become a blue god. Yeah, yeah. He wants to be a, he wants to be a blue man, not a white man anymore. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Carry on. Again, this episode is so fundamentally focused around Angela that after every single one of these push the plot forward scenes we have to go back to lady true's compound and lady true kind of is doing a speech outside outside the millennium clock where it's going to go live later and she talks about how the great failure of her company was the the nostalgia pills being pulled off the market because people kept on wanting to experience the worst moments of their life and because if they if they can move past them then i'll have they what if they're still unhappy or something like that? Yeah, yeah. But, it, but again, it's all getting down to that generational trauma. This is intercut with scenes from episode six of, yeah. of and even down to scenes from earlier on this episode where Angela's experiencing the awful things that happened to Will and the awful things that happened to her mm. and all these terrible things. And she kind of gives up in the middle of speech and goes to have a conversation with her grandfather who she believes is in the next room. Um, nope. <laughs> Surprise, it's a motherfucking CGI elephant. Yeah, CGI elephant. If you haven't noticed, Lady True's company logo is an elephant. Oh. Uh, this oh. is the literal elephant in the room. Oh, God. <laughs> Elephants <laughs> never forget, hence why they're yeah, involved in. I assumed that was in some way... In, like, are they saying the nostalgia thing comes from researching elephants' capacity for memory? Are they... Like, I don't fucking know, but... Yeah, her her very long yellow drip is going into a wall... And then a different tube is coming out into the elephant. Presumably, they're doing something in that next room to like pass the thing, treat it in some way, and pass it back and forth. And I don't know, but certainly is not Will Reeves. <laughs> no, I, I, the elephant is is whatever the antibodies are. I do like. I mean, obviously, the elephant in the room for this episode is who is Doctor Manhattan, but mm. we, we're not there yet. <laughs> no, but yeah, I I like. Lady True saying she graduated from MIT and then four years later she bought it and stuff like that. Like, giving yeah, her own villain monologue after Keen did his. Like, she's on all the... Like, Angela's looking her right in the eye almost, and then she, like, pushes through the wall, the, the doors, and yeah, yeah. It's it's good stuff. Like, we've, yeah, got, as... we've got two separate villainous factions who are kind of bumping around in the same area, potentially without knowing it. I mean, I assume they're separate factions. Yeah, both kind of building towards their big plan, both giving their big monologues. They've both got one of the heroes captive. Like, yeah, it's a fun little bit of mirroring there. Yes. 
But as Angela pulls out her drip, because uh, she sees this attached to an elephant and not her grandfather, we get one final flashback for the episode as she gets to meet... Oh, God. <laughs> she gets to meet her grandmother. It can't yeah. get sadder, and yet it does. <laughs> yeah, her grandmother has come all the way to to Vietnam. She, she tries to get in contact with her son, who left her, presumably because broken home, a generation trauma of his dad being a superhero, and mm. all these different things. She sends a letter that has it bounces back because he's died, and from there she finds out that she's got a grandchild over in Vietnam. And didn't she say, like, she told him she wouldn't speak to him if he, if he went to Vietnam, and then he did go to Vietnam anyway. Yeah. And, and yeah, so there's been some some separation there, and then eventually finding out about Angela, and like, saying you know, encouraging her to watch Sister Night and being like, oh, that's the first thing we'll do when we get to Tulsa and all of this stuff. Yeah, like, and, and saying, like, we've got family in Tulsa, or, like, that's where our family's from, and yeah. seeding the, the fact that Angela should go to Tulsa when she's old enough, and dodging she... the question of, does she have a grandfather? <laughs> and she says, someone in a mask scared him when he was about your age, talking about uh, her father and stuff. And I was sitting there thinking, like, I swear she said she was a cop in Saigon. And then I was like, maybe it's just a cute way of, like, you know, she had her little badge that that cop gave her it's like oh okay that's cute and then nope june fucking <laughs> drops dead <laughs> yeah she I, I think she mentions that she got out of hospital before this like she had heart surgery or something along those lines and i mean she's very sweaty throughout that conversation but i put yeah. that down to it's a fucking humid country like yes but yeah she, she puts angel in the back of the taxi they're going to the airport they're gonna go home so and... sad and as she walks around, she just collapses. And back you go to the orphanage, Angela. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's so tragic and so again, like so much bad stuff happens in her life that you can kind of understand why is she someone who is violent and has rage issues or like has issues with expressing her anger. I don't know when... how people who experience this level of trauma. I don't know how they don't just sit in the corner and cry all day. Like this is so hilariously sad almost like you couldn't make it up i mean someone has but yeah it's yeah staggering but yeah but yeah <laughs> angela wakes up from this final drug-induced memory and tries to get out of lady true's compound but obviously lady true is thinking 17 steps ahead and instead <laughs> takes her directly to the the hub for all the dr manhattan phone calls which is a giant globe and angela starts listening to various phone calls of people who obviously like having issues and wanting to talk to literal God. And she gets to see a brief snippet of Laurie's phone call that we saw in episode three. Yeah, she's like, he's not listening. Do you know why that is? It's because he's not on Mars. He's right here in Tulsa pretending to be a human being. And I think before this, she even said she's trying to save humanity. And it, mm. it's happening here in Oklahoma. Or her plan is to save humanity and it has to be here in Oklahoma or whatever. But yeah, this is the exact moment that I put together that it was it was Cal. Uh, before she says um, about, I've just told you Dr. Manhattan's in Tulsa and you didn't ask me who it is. Before that, I was like, oh, it's fucking Cal. I thought of your comment and I was like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, and just this sort of unconscious racism that one would never guess that Hooded Justice and Dr. Manhattan could be black people. Like, oh, that would never even occur to me that it could be, they could be black. I have a better case with Dr. Manhattan because he literally was white. 
yeah, he was he is a Jewish person, and obviously, I think that's something the show, the show doesn't really touch on. Mm. Uh, in like, it, it very briefly does touch on the kind of appropriation, but there is obviously something there <laughs> involving a Jewish man becoming black. Yes. Um, <laughs> and even down to the PDPD file, having a little bit about how Cal was circumcised from birth, mm. like for whatever reason, he does either maybe maybe Cal was circumcised, but there is a, a bit of the Jewish hint. Eh. In in the way that is is structured, I don't know. I feel most um, Americans are circumcised. That is that is also true. Although they are in, uh, they are in Vietnam, which is America, I guess at this point. But was he born in Vietnam? Uh, Who knows? We're getting into into discussions here. Yes. Uh, so many great Lady True quotes here, like her kind of turning to Angela, like she expects Angela to come out and tell her that she knows that Cal is Doctor Manhattan. Are we going to quit fucking around here and yeah. how she's how she is fucking saving humanity? Oh, and she says like, oh, have you been telling? Have you been putting it into uh, my grandfather's head? This idea about Doctor Manhattan walking among us, or whatever, and she's like, "No, he gave me the idea, actually." <laughs> yeah, because um, this is where, like, it, like, Lady True is there to try and stop the Seventh Calvary. Is what Will wanted to help to do. He came to her. We don't know why Will decided to come to Lady True, but as we find out in the next episode, Will was inspired to come to Oklahoma to try and find out what was happening with Cyclops down there. So fucking good. Yeah, and we go to Cal, and he is reading For Whom the Bell Tolls, and <laughs> Angela just starts telling him he needs to come out of the tunnel and get to Hammer, and he's like, are the, are the children asleep? And I just kept waiting for this moment where we'd pan out and the kids are watching her beat him to death in front of them. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's. I mean, like Angela is like done with it. She's already busted through Red Scare and Pirate Jenny outside the compound, yes, yes. and she comes home, gets a hammer out, and then just like really sickeningly just beats her husband's head in, yeah. and then pulls out a little metal version of his little his atom hydrogen, symbol, his little yeah. hydrogen symbol, and then you see as, the blue glow over yeah, her and everything. As the piano version of uh, like the Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross version of David Bowie's Love for Mars starts playing. The episode ends with that blue glow and a blue body reflected in her eyes, and it's an incredible ending yeah. to the episode. And, like, and he's like, "You're not acting like yourself, Angela," or "Oh, you're not yourself, Angela." And she's like, "You're not yourself, John." And it's like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> like, yeah, so good. And like that, I was expecting because you, you know, you told me about this musical choice being in the show, and I'd heard it. Obviously, I've heard it. It's the intro and outro to this fucking podcast. I kept expecting, I don't know what I was expecting, a shot of Dr. Manhattan on Mars walking around or some shit like that. Nope. It starts fucking playing while she's murdering the shit out of Cal. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's beautiful. And like hitting him in a precise spot and then like digging her hands, in, her fingers into his head. And yeah, yeah. I did not see this I... coming. And Well, I mean, I saw it coming about five minutes before they told me, but like... <laughs> Yeah, it was crazy, crazy, crazy reveal. I can't believe they've pulled the same trick twice <laughs> within, like, two episodes of each other. I find it incredibly interesting that Doomsday Clock and this, presumably Damon Lindelof was not talking to Jeff Johns about his plans for the show. Maybe he had to. I don't know. They are the right. I think Jeff Johns did sit down and have a conversation with Damon Lindelof about the show. I think... Okay. Jeff Johns was still involved in Warner Brothers media stuff, and I think there is an interview or there's something where Lindelof and Jeff Johns kind of hashed out some of the plot stuff for the season okay. after the pilot or had a conversation about it. I, I don't want to go on record and say that definitely something that happened, but I have seen an interview right. with Lindelof 
crediting Johns with being in the room and being involved in the discussions for the show. Okay. Well, we got into Doom... You know, in case you missed episode one of the show because you don't like comic books, Doomsday Clock is an official comic book sequel to Watchmen, written by Jeff Johns, um, that it started two years before the show, but it finished after the show had already started or after the show had ended even I don't yeah know. The, the, the finale episode i think aired on the sunday and the comic book came out on the wednesday okay. i think is how it happened yeah so it's two different people coming up with what happens after watchmen and in doomsday clock is largely garbage but a big event they decided there was dr manhattan spent however many decades hiding as a normal person and he can make himself look like a normal person and I just find it really interesting both of these people would decide Dr. Manhattan would want to be a human boy again. And it's like, I feel... I'm not saying they're wrong. I just... It feels very much like he is content to spiral off into something beyond humanity. And yet, two different big writers decided they would that Dr. Manhattan would yearn to be a human again. And it's like... I don't know. I just find that interesting. Oh yeah, so the episode ends. I, I still remember when the song got released, and I was so annoyed that they were releasing the soundtracks every three episodes rather than every kind of like two or whatever. So they had to put up this cover of Life on Mars on YouTube, and I just listened to it on YouTube obsessively for a week before the the soundtrack finally dropped after the ninth episode. But It's, it's really, really, really good. It had, yeah. it had to be the theme song for the show. For yeah, sure. Reznor and Ross fucking kill it they do the whole soundtrack is great like i don't want to listen ahead because i don't want any like i guess the soundtrack couldn't spoil it but i don't know i want to experience these cues in in real time as it were yeah there Um, are some vocal clips in the soundtrack which would spoil stuff i think sure the peterpedia stuff here dale pt does research into sister knight it's got some fun little bits about how um detectives have to provide a statement as to why they chose their masked identity and uh, Angela just said, watch the movie. There is mention that, you know, there were black parodies of various superheroes and how Batman is a parody of Night Owl. Uh, <laughs> so Batman's a black dude in the world of Watchmen as well. They are not stopping with this, are they? No. It mentions how Reeves ended up owning a movie theatre and from, like, the moment Angela adopted the name, he started showing Sister Night, like, every Sunday night. And <laughs> PT thinks Angela likes it so much because of the dead parents, and it's like, yeah, but there's a layer to that you don't even know that like she was holding this in her hands when her parents died, like. Uh, yeah. And then the other one is Cal's accident report, like the the medical report of him, his accident that we will now find out is fake. But I just found it interesting that like the form includes level of DIE exposure, as in the day that the the squid dropped. Like that's a fun. It's a major world event. Like I think that that merits being on there. It notes that he was a pyramid employee, Ozymandias's company that Roy Chess worked for. Yeah, Angela brought him in. He's unusually quiet and polite for a fugue patient. <laughs> yeah, and and kind of obsessed with the Doctor Manhattan doll on the table. It's yeah. all yeah. very cute and it foreshadowing. Well, not foreshadowing because we've already had the reveal. But... Well, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we're barreling straight on into episode eight. Say the name. And actually, this this turned out to be a mistake. Well, not, not mistake. Uh, this turned out to be a complete coincidence. But the episode is called "A God Walks Into a Bar." Fuck off. Uh, 
just who they wrote that title down and then did a lap of the writers room accepting high fives didn't they yeah like they apparently they had her they came up with angela's name being angela abar before they came up with the episode title they hadn't planned out that this would be like the the penultimate episode of the series but someone had written on a on a wall in the writers room and just put walks into a bar and then they put it together that they had a character called abar and nice yeah yeah, because yeah, he he literally walks into a bar uh, and then he sees a bar. Yes, yes. Uh, but yeah, written by Jeff Jensen and Damon Lindelof. Jeff Jensen, probably best known for being the ex TV critic over at Entertainment Weekly, who recapped Lost across all six seasons. Permission. One of the people who got very close to Damon Lindelof, and I think Damon Lindelof like would quite frequently talk about on the Lost podcast that he quite enjoyed Jeff's write ups and like his crazy theories for the show. And I think he's like he was brought on as a writer's assistant, and this is his first TV credit. Hmm. He's nice. on this show. Just Honestly, like, just like, like finding someone that like gets your work, I guess. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And and again, again, he's first build on this. I think every other episode, Lindelof is the top build name on the episode, except for this one where where Jensen is is beforehand, which. Yeah in TV crediting world, probably means something. And then returning to the director's seat for her third episode this season, Nicole Cassell, who does an absolutely fantastic job. Yeah. Like, the, the two big directors this, this this season were Nicole Cassell and Stephen Williams, and I'm glad they both got the kind of big, brava, crazy episode that involves so much kind of visual styling. Yeah. I don't know if this is scripting or directing, but the number of times we are zoomed in on Manhattan's hands, and there's, like, a finger twitch or something to, like, give a gesture. Like, oh, it's so good. It's so good. Yeah, Yaya like, fucking crushes this episode. Yeah, we, we, need to, we need to talk about how good Yaya is. It, very important to note, he was not told when he auditioned for the pilot oh my uh, God. that he had, that he was going to be playing Dr. Manhattan. They told him in between filming the second and third episodes. Wow. Uh, so he immediately he knew that he would have to be naked at some point. So I was going to say, up. did he did he have a nudity clause? <laughs> I imagine they probably did because he had to be naked in that first episode. Uh, yeah, but you don't really see anything. Do you? No, again, but he apparently he hired a personal trainer and started to diet because he wanted to be even more good looking later on in the season. Apparently, it took two and a half hours to put the makeup on, yeah, uh, and then another hour to remove it after he'd done all of it. Mm. The final note for this one, which is just a fun little bit, is apparently the bar that they're in is modelled after Eddie's bar in Watchmen. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, this this episode is absolutely crazy. If you know my taste in television, an episode which is so structurally taught as this, with a fun central conceit. This is my ideal kind of episode of television. It was my favourite episode of television in 2019. It's very much the kind of issue for episode for this show in that it's fully Dr. Manhattan and fully based around the idea that Dr. Manhattan does not experience time in a chronological way that makes sense yeah, and writing an, and writing an episode that has to make sense whilst you're jumping around in time and still have an emotional through line for all of it must be so incredibly daunting i predict there was string involved they they had an entire wall several flowchart pages yeah it's so good the whole you know, I drop the photograph, I meet the girl, I break up with the girl, I pick up the photograph. Like, yeah, like, jumping around in time and the way he perceives everything. It is interesting to see him 
doing it i always took it to be internal monologue and i mm. don't know if he ever i can't remember the big issue with laurie on mars if he ever like says it to her like it is this date but he definitely does it to angela like she asks him a question and he says it is blah 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 i am here like yeah yeah it's incredible like i had to ask you is this yaya's voice is yaya playing him and like it becomes very clear he is <laughs> like later on because it's literally him painted blue but they spend most of this I'd, i don't know the first three quarters of this episode never showing him like he picks up a manhattan mask outside the bar and he puts it on over his actual face and it's some special day so everyone's dressed as dr manhattan it, it's, it's vvn again it's yeah. god knows how many years later after the death of angela's 22 parents 22 years after the anniversary, yes yes um and there, there's stuff like you can see through the mouth hole in the mask, you can see someone is blue underneath that. And like they show a lot of like the back of his head, the side of his neck, like and I was like, Oh, they just this is a clever way of getting around the fact that He looked like comic book Manhattan at this point. Yeah, but like, like they, they how could, do you get they... around the facial structure of Yaya? Like that's a very distinctly different look than how Doctor Manhattan is drawn. Obviously, we don't consider Zack Snyder's Billy Crudup Manhattan to be canon, but I think the look is pretty close to the other. Well, yeah, that's the thing is, I think they they could, like, if they wanted to, could they have gone to Billy Crudup and gone, do you want to be mm. in the show for an episode or, or like, for a, a scene or two? But they very wisely had to be Yaya, and, yeah. like, it's, it's such an incredible physical and vocal performance. I think the vocal performance is the most incredible part yeah, in that... I this is out of his normal vocal range and it started I think it was a to come strength. through a little bit but like early on it was like wow is this really him like <laughs> yeah i think i think it's hard for someone to do it this this for this long and obviously like with any accent work it takes a lot of pressure but when you compare this to billy crudup's performance who sounds like disaffected but kind of snarky i think is where we came down on in yeah. the movie like he's a little bit bitchy yeah, yeah. whereas here it's so unattached and he like is, his he is like overflowing with pain and like i want to be your friend and, and loneliness you know like it's yeah. it fits so much better while not being a million miles off what credit was doing like i don't know if it's i mean it's inescapable i saw the movie so whenever i read the characters they spoke in their voices, if that makes sense. So, like, mm. Manhattan's voice will always, to me, whether Crudup's performance is good, bad, or in between, his voice will always be a little bit drifty and effeminate and soft. But now Yaya has given a... Like, I, I like this version better. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. And so, in this scene, she sits down with Angela and kind of says, do you want to come to dinner with me tomorrow night? And she's very hostile. And he does what? that infuriating Dr. Manhattan thing of kind of... <laughs> knowing exactly why you're somewhere because you've told him that you're why you're there later on in the conversation and so he has the information yes already exactly, for him. exactly like dan and laurie where he is very like say hi to dan for me and you've been sleeping with dan and she's like oh you know he's like you're going to tell me in 10 minutes or something and then when she tells him he's devastated and it's exactly like that here where he's like will you have a drink with me if i can tell you why you're drinking alone she says yes and then he says oh you're it's the 22nd anniversary of your parents death and then when she goes on to tell him later he's like oh your parents died and it's like <laughs> you son of a bitch <laughs> like, yeah i've already told you this but he have he knows he has to react and like it's almost like he's tricked himself into faking human emotions or 
No, I, so, I well, yeah. Oh, no, I, as in, as in, like the the cut, like that is the first time he's told that information, and he exactly, has the very yeah. real response. But also, he knows it already going into that, and so he is also kind of doing the default human response to saying it. It's, I, I think it's that he's remembering something that hasn't happened yet, but when it happens, that is his authentic emotional response in that moment. I don't th- yeah. like. There is a reading of Dr. Manhattan that he is completely devoid of empathy and knowing what it is to be human, but I think a more true one is it's just his very unique way of perception naturally isolates him and stuff and gives yeah, him this it, strange it, feeling. And like, is he constantly experiencing everything, or is it he just has completely perfect recall? Like, when he goes, It is this time and I am doing this, is he literally living that, or is he, when he goes to think of something, he's instantly in the moment and it's like i think it's somewhere in between almost i think he is on some level always experiencing all of time all at once but clearly some things are at the forefront of his mind more than others but yeah it's it's such a good part and he starts explaining to angela that he has been creating life (laughs) off on europa i got it right (laughs) (laughs) yeah dr man's been creating life off on europa he makes a quip about how he created life in less than 90 seconds and Angela's immediate response to this, and it's one of those, this is probably one of my favourite inflections, is Angela going, a man creating life in under two minutes. Yeah. And then his immediate response is, ah, a sex joke. No no laugh, but kind of like a, a wry smile almost in his it's, delivery. Yeah, and like, it's funny. <laughs> Why does Crookshanks have tan lines when she's freshly created? They, I don't know. <laughs> okay. But yeah, a very, that, a very pretty scene where he's like, waving his hand and life is erupting onto uh, this moon of Jupiter and yeah, uh, as we touched upon Phillips and Crookshanks you know, they are his Adam and Eve and he explains how he patterned them after the Lord and the Lady of this manner that he and his father sought asylum in back in World War II, World War II yeah. and yeah, he sort of when he is a boy poking about this mansion he happens upon them fucking or starting to fuck and they have to explain to him, this is natural, this is normal, we're trying to create a life. Here's a Bible. Please promise us that you will create something beautiful. And he ends up making them his Adam and Eve. And he teleports their, the exact mansion to Europa. And she, like Angela asks, you can make it from nothing. Why did you teleport it? And it's like, because it's so special. And I was sort of waiting for the PTpedia article about how a mansion went missing in in England. Oh, or something. I, I I can cover that. That is that is indeed covered. Yeah, it is called the Pit. It is a mansion in Wales. Disappeared in I think it when it when, I it disappeared in the eighties, I believe, because you go straight to Europa. <laughs> and so the fun part of this is a little known band called Nine Inch Nails. Oh yeah. After having a conversation with the founder of Napster, Sean Parker, tells them to add a the to their name. Right. And they perform their final ever gig in the pit. And their last release album is called The Manhattan Project. And it was recorded in the pit. Wow. And yeah, and it's and like this is this is the album information for the third volume of the Watchmen soundtrack. And it's all about how Trent Reznor with Atticus Ross in the Nine Inch Nails recorded an album in the pit and did a live show and all the rest. And I haven't been seen since they recorded this this live show or whatever it is amazing <laughs> it's a fantastic bit of world building and the fact that they're playing off of the social network soundtrack and yeah <laughs> all these different parts involved in this is is great fun and like right down to the fact that if you buy the third volume of soundtrack 
it comes with like authentic Nine Inch Nails album letter numbering on it because each Nine Inch Nails album has like a different number on the back of it and they replace one of their older ones in the series with it and it's got like a fake fake track listing and <laughs> like the the three the three Watchmen LPs are so well thought through and the biggest shame is that they didn't have all the songs finished before they had to go take them to pressing so uh-huh. the Life on Mars cover is a digital download for the final volume rather than it being actually on the soundtrack but uh... yeah like the, the other fun part is that the Nine Inch Nails as they're referred to is only ever used in one piece other piece of media and that is when Nine Inch Nails appeared in Twin Peaks The Return to the live band and so do they really well yes okay i've seen a few live bands in twin peaks the return but not far enough to see the nine inch nails the nine inch nails so yeah so uh hints that watchmen and twin peaks the return take place in the same fictional universe oh god something. don't where is the white lodge is it on europa <laughs> the other fun part about this scene is that the bible illustrations of adam and eve were drawn by dave gibbons Aww. so yeah so so it, he might have drawn stuff in the last episode but he definitely drew the bible illustrations in this one I was waiting for some horrible turn from this lord and lady, but they're just nice people, aren't they? they I, I think that one of my favourite things, and it's the most telling, is, and it, it kind of comes up in a second, where Dr. Manhattan tells Angela the reason he left Europa was so that he could meet her because he was in love with her. And it's down to this idea that John, Dr. Manhattan, Cal, however you want to refer to him, is always thinking with his dick. <laughs> and is this kind of like thing yeah. that is it bred for him from this moment where when he is a small child he watches this couple who are in love and having this moment of beauty and fun and he says that they look like they're having a great time <laughs> and it feels like it's left this indelible mark on him that even when he's god he can't get over the very base human instinct that love and sex and human companionship are so very important mm. to yeah. He is a big old horn dog, isn't he? That, that's the thing is like every, all of his relationships are through the lens of women, yes. and and it makes complete sense. Like it's the same thing where he falls in love with a sixteen-year-old girl in, mm. in, in the Crime Brothers. I mean, yes, we can get away from the ickiness of that, but then he comes and falls in love with another woman in this, and it's yeah. the thing that convinces him to leave this paradise of life. It isn't super heroics or anything like that. It's it's love. Does he not also explain that they? The people he made, the Phillipses and the Crookshanks, they look at him with utter adoration. Yes, and, and he wants he like he wants someone to challenge him or someone that doesn't look at him like that always. Yes, and then yeah, that'll link up in a minute that someone else does want to be adored. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, in fact, I think it's in this scene when he says Angela makes a comment that he's got a, a wild imagination. And he brings up that someone else is telling him in six months' time that he's got no imagination at all. With 100% certainty, I was like, that's going to be Ozymandias. <laughs> like, no one else criticises Dr. Manhattan like him. They have this weird kinship where... I mean, I know he says that, like, the smartest man in the world is no more of a threat to me than the smartest termite, but, like, I still feel he is the closest he's going to get to an intellectual equal. I, I do love when he refers to him as a friend, and then and just like a friend, and he goes like, perhaps he's more of a colleague. He tried to kill me once. <laughs> I, I can't imagine why. I think she says, <laughs> and she also starts talking like him a little bit. I feel she like when she's telling one of her stories back. Like I feel she she narrates it in a way that is similar to his. It's this time. It's this time. This happens. I don't know, but yeah, it's. I mean, again, like this. This is where I mean, like, even now. So she manages to convince. Manhattan to take the mask off so that she can see his face and and he does and he's not glowing and she comments on the fact that he's not glowing but I think we do need to give like we've already mentioned that Nicole Cassell 
shoots the shit out of this episode. <laughs> but uh, I also think that Greg Middleton, who is the cinematographer for this episode, does a fantastic job at shooting it so that it makes sense. I have to imagine that Yaya was on set the entire time to have the conversation with Regina King, but it's incredibly difficult to choose dynamic angles where you can tell that someone is talking and someone is acting and get a sense of their physical performance, but you are not allowed to show their face. Yeah, denying someone's eyes and mouth is a very... That's a very hard thing like you, you, to, to find them, uh, but he is so uh, towering the entire conversation. Uh, I also really like, I forgot to say, when he walks into the bar, there's that overweight man with the crude painting of blue, and he kind of does that face of, mm, not bad, when he walks past. <laughs> yeah, that's good yeah. stuff. We get a bit more contact, like uh, Angela explicitly says like she hates Dr. Manhattan because of what happened on the day that her parents died. Manhattan insists that they're going to go out for dinner together, and Angela kind of is inspired to stick around. And then Dr. Manhattan says, like, you're going to be the one that figures out after he's taken the mask off, and how he's like, we can't go out for dinner because people will immediately recognise that you're Dr. Manhattan because tomorrow no one's dressed in fucking blue. And Manhattan says, oh, you're going to be, you're going to figure out a disguise for me. I do also like that he says that I can take you anywhere in the world. Why would you want to go to a restaurant? <laughs> but yeah, they go to a morgue to pick out a corpse that she's okay to fuck. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think it's very telling, and I think it's a very conscious choice that she wants. She doesn't pick out the black corpse for him. She picks no. out. She is it two Asian corpses and a and a white corpse, or is it two it's white? Certainly one white, one Asian, and then the other one is one or the other as mm. well yes and but she, he, she, he he even says like unless there's another option but she needs to be nudged into doing it and i think this is the show attempting to have that conversation about appropriation and like we get it again with the scene with with adrian later on of a jewish man like one minority taking over the body of another minority and how there needs to be something there and it's hard to say whether or not the show nails it because it's like, is it better if Angela explicitly chooses it for him, or is it better that he chooses to do this for her? But yeah. I think it's. I mean, he ex- makes the point he doesn't care how he looks. He can make him look himself look any way he wants. And then she says, "Well, I don't care how you look." And then he's like, "Well, then pick one, unless there's another option." And I don't know. Maybe she's seen them all before maybe maybe we're getting into something where like you know she would be more comfortable with a black man like i i don't know but yeah. uh i yeah it is obviously a a slightly tricky area but i think given how fucking bombastic this entire situation is i think they can get away with it <laughs> yeah but yeah he he chooses cow's body because again they say like it can't be someone that, it can't be anyone it has to be someone with birth records and information that we can use to have you have a real life other than just you're someone who just comes into existence yeah. one day. And he also, like, they're all, none of them have next of kin. They're all due to be cremated. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, he transforms into Cal and we get to hear Yaya's proper voice for the first time this episode because his vocal cords loosen through the transformation. I assume it's just, it, it must be so fucking hard to do that thing where you're speaking several octaves above your true voice. But wouldn't it, like, your voice is defined by your physiology anyway. The the, I, the layout and the structure and whatnot of your vocal cords determines what you sound like. So if Cal is a man of this height and this sort of stature, he would have a voice more like this, I would assume. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it is like Dr. Manhattan is someone who's like, I will copy every single atom of this person exactly, and yeah. this person has a different voice box yeah. to, to John Osterman's. And Yaya looks incredible. 
as always. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Swoon. She says you forgot your thing. He still has the little uh, Manhattan logo on his on his head. And he says, I'm going to forget so much more. And then he says, oh, a conversation for another time. Yes. Yes. Good stuff. Uh, but yeah, and then we get Angela kind of pushing for, like, how long are they going to be together when they're together? And he tells her that they're going to be together for 10 years and they'll end in tragedy. Which, again, some nice foreshadowing for the end of this episode. Like, the, the thing that's really impressive about this episode is that you get the entire span of their relationship. And whilst we're probably missing out on a lot of the stuff of them in Tulsa and a lot of them with the kids, we have got to see that in previous episodes. And we know that they are a functioning romantic couple. And this is a Cliff Notes version of the time that Angela and Dr. Manhattan, with all his faculties, were together. Yes. And I think the whole episode perfectly captures the spirit of what it was like with Laurie and what it was like with Janie and like how he could be so appealing like you know he is there is no one like him in human existence in human history he is this he is a god like I you can see why he would be appealing and why he is charming in his weird way you can see why he is frustrating as all get out and you can see why after people have left him have been left by him would then miss him because like a story they tell is that, you know, Laurie leaves John for Dan, who is a better match for her or whatever, but, like, she still holds a candle for John, and Dan passive-aggressively makes a dildo out of it. And uh, what's that dildo called, Ben? That dildo is called Excalibur, which is fun because we know from the comic book that Dan Dryberg is obsessed with Disney Sword and the Stone, but what does Excalibur break down into, Matt? X cal a bar. <laughs> Fuck off. Yeah, it, it's great though. Like the whole, like he is maddening and he continually does these little gestures to prove he is being authentic. And he says, your favorite song is going to play. I, I love this moment now. And then it comes on. And it's like, was it, was that the exact moment it was going to come on on shuffle or did he make it play? <laughs> and it's this song called Tunnel of Love. And she's like, oh my God, I've never heard this song before. <laughs> and it will become her favourite song because of this moment. And this whole thing about being in a tunnel has yeah, been and, a metaphor and... already. Like it was a big thing for Looking Glass and how we're all in this tunnel. And also she said it to him at the end of the previous episode, where it's like, it's time to come out of the tunnel, John. Yeah, or and there's even, like, later on the episode with the ring that they have, they refer to it as the tunnel because of the, the, the cylindrical shape. Yes. My other favourite part of this is Cal starts mentioning that they're going to have an argument <laughs> in six months' time. <laughs> and we cut to them having sex, and she asks, where are you? And he says, I'm in the bar just before I created the egg. <laughs> and it's this wonderfully like non-sequitur thing where it's like what the fuck does he mean he'd have created the egg but it's it's that part of it where the episode tells you things in advance that make no sense to the audience but they must make sense to Angela and also Cal's ability to ruin the mood because he's oh, like we're, yes. we're, we're about to have a fight and like, no, we're would... fucking right now. We're not going to yeah. have a fight. The fight wouldn't happen if Cal, Dr. Manhattan, didn't bring up the fact that they're about to have a fight. And again, it's that determinism type thing where... Well, that's, his, that's the whole thing. Like, he wouldn't have met her if he hadn't decided to go meet her. Like, he didn't yeah. stumble upon her. Although he does say the thing about how he walked into that bar and, like, he could immediately see someone who was, like so hurt and crying out in pain and everything um yeah so much of what he does 
he is seemingly pushing these events into motion. And then there are other times he takes no action because he says, but this is how it happens. And it's like, have you ever considered some of what you say will happen wouldn't have happened if you didn't say anything? <laughs> like, yeah, but then his response would be like, but that's what I say in the moment. Exactly, and- yeah. It, it's so beautifully maddening. Like, yeah. it, there, is a, there is a gorgeousness to the writing and how irritating he is. Yeah, it's so good. It's like, it, what, based on the movie, I was like, oh, Dr. Manhattan, what a dick. And then I read the book and I reread the book and it's like, oh no, Dr. Manhattan's such a well-written character. Yeah, like, everything makes sense. And this episode manages to thread that needle in a way that no other piece of Watchmen media that has featured Dr. Manhattan in such an impressive role has been able to do. Like, this is the first... Of all the things that we read in the preparation for this, I think this is the only one, apart from Doomsday Clock, that went out of its way to feature Dr. Manhattan and have an extended interior scene featuring Dr. Manhattan. Doing the references to issue four. Like, yeah, yeah, definitely. And then, yeah, the egg. Um, You told me to watch out for the eggs and pay attention to the eggs. And uh, here he is, making an egg appear to prove he can create life. Yes, and and what came first, the chicken or the egg, is one of the central metaphors for the show. But before that, we get, they have the fight. It's one of those fights that you can see. There's a lot of emotional pain to it that feels like a real fight that a couple would have. But through the lens of it being, Dr. Manhattan is so infuriating because he knows everything and will force you into having the fight. We're in the fight now. We're in the fight now. You're damn fucking right, we're in the fight now. And she tells him to go, and his response to that is to go and see his old acquaintance, colleague, friend, Ozymandias, and the glorious appearance of Karnak, and Cal walking through the Arctic, or Antarctic. Naked as the day he was born. He says, uh, you know, how did you know it's me? It's like, only Dr. Manhattan would dare come to me naked as the day he was born. Oh, you missed, says, you, missed, you missed the important part of that. Only Dr. Manhattan would have the balls okay, to come. Okay, the balls to come, yeah. So and would he, to show up here wearing nothing but his birthday suit. Yes, and he says, should I put something on and a planet of people scream, no! <laughs> because yes. Yaya is very attractive. Yaya is very attractive. We get a shot of the penis. Yes, as is tradition. As is tradition, it's not as much as the Watchmen movie, but no. j- just just saying aesthetically, it's a better penis than in the movie. <laughs> Welcome to our dick creating podcast. Um, uh, yes, and then we then we cut to Yaya wearing a suit. Of course, yes. not going to complain to him wearing a suit. Ah. Um, and they have just a conversation. I love that in the background of this entire conversation that they're having about Doctor Manhattan coming to visit him after. Like, it's been 24 years since I came to see you and mm-hmm. I'm experiencing it now and you killed me. We have Ozymandias running around this room setting up the squid fall. Yes, and I had to ask, like, is he manually triggering these? Because obviously he's about to go missing for seven years and in the present there is still squid fall. So I guess yeah. it's to some degree it is automated, but maybe he feels he needs to monitor it, but... It is a touch longer than seven years. Uh... They, reference, they reference the fact it's 2009. Oh, of course. Okay, yeah. But the the main point is, yes, the squid fall is happening still in the present, and he's about to vanish. So, <laughs> And he made that comment in the video that um, King Glass got to see, that I'll do little updates now and then, or something like that, to, to sort of keep the narrative going. Because it's like, you know, the squid would obviously be a huge world-altering event, 
But humans have a remarkable capacity for ignoring things if you give them enough time. So you can see why he would need to do a very minor little... Uh, yeah, <laughs> like, this is what keeps the Earth on edge, and he's still doing it. And what I like about this is, like, obviously they have a conversation about the appropriation of... It's not the 80s anymore, this kind of appropriation <laughs> is considered offensive. So um, good. And so, who, so. in their right mind, would want to be romantically involved with a god and kind of disparaging all the women that have been involved with Dr. Manhattan beforehand. But I love that there is a sense of melancholy to Ozymandias because he's got so much frustration with the fact that the people on Earth have not paid attention to what he tried to do. Like, when, they, when he comes to Karnak, he's swearing at a nuclear fallout in India, and he's like, why must these people insist on making their bombs mm -hmm. and Dr. Man says it's because it makes them feel safe yeah. and he's lost faith in saving humanity anymore. And I also feel like a fundamental problem with this is he wants the credit but he can never tell people he did it, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like he has this deep-seated need for praise but he is also intellectual enough to realise that he can never, like, spell out what he did you know like it, it it feels like that serial killer thing of like he wants to be caught but he can't be caught yeah i love this sort of conversation between them jeremy irons is like fully in on it and you know he's obviously doing such ridiculous stuff in the mansion and this is a very different energy like he has to act younger and but you know he I, I saw I him at his youngest in in the video but in this it's like He's younger, but he's also, like, he's a bit of a broken man. Like, he's starting to come unraveled a little bit. Yeah, I love that there's a little bit of blonde in his hair. Yeah, 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 that kind of stuff as well. Like, so good. And it became clear, like, in the argument that he's going to go to Adrian because he's the one person that might be able to help him figure out how to erase his memory. Because Cal clearly did not know he was Dr. Manhattan <laughs> when, uh, when Angela came at him with the hammer. And yes, sure enough, he's here, and he's, you know, this is what he wants, and is this when he says you have a profound lack of imagination, or is, it is that yeah, in response yeah, to something else? But... He says you have a profound lack of imagination. It's involved in their conversation about what Ozymandias is doing, or whatever. Yeah, 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 sure enough, he's got a little box, radiated in tachyons, which, as we know, are clouded from John's mind, and he's like, do you know what's in this box? And like... Yaya has this like almost smile. He's like, I don't know what's in that box. <laughs> yeah, like this is this is surprising. Like this is the yeah. first time he's felt surprised at anything. In, in like even though he knows presumably what's in it because he will handle it and and have it embedded in his head and know what it does. Mm. But but in this it, moment, he doesn't know what's in it. And and yeah, or maybe the thing is radiated in it as well. I don't know. But yeah, so they, they we know that it it leads to a sense of fuzziness. Yes, later on. Well, like, he he it, points out that like. There is a period of time he can't see. He just knows Angela is there at the beginning and the end of it. And it's like, yeah, foreshadowing all of this. And yeah, they walk it through that, like, if, you know, he says, Do you have a brain? And he's like, Sorry. <laughs> it's like, you know, it, if you have a brain, presumably we can suppress your, your, like, memories. And yeah, they embed this thing in his head and it will take away his abilities. And if he doesn't know he has them, he can't use them except in a life threatening situation. And I immediately thought, Ah. Oh, the White Knight, because <laughs> there was this fogginess about Angela is basically dead to rights, and then we cut to her in the hospital, and and Judd is like, oh yeah, you 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 nailed it. There were yeah, there were two attackers. They only talk about one. So and... so Manhattan presumably atomized the second attacker. They say in the episode he they teleport him away. Uh, okay, yeah, and they're they're talking this through, and 
yeah, it's all good stuff. And the little hearkening back to how long would it take you to make this device is like, oh, John, I made it 30 years ago. Yeah, a fantastic callback to the original <laughs> comic book. I love that he refers to it as like, this plan B was to blow you up, plan A was amnesia. Like, I, <laughs> I, I'm so fascinated. Like, obviously, it's not in the original text whatsoever, but I'd be fascinated to see what 1985 Ozymandias' plan was to get this embedded in John's head. Like, (laughs) would he have gone to have a conversation with Laurie and go like, right, you want to have him as a proper partner, someone who isn't going to transform into three people to have a foursome with you? Yeah, Yeah. but I mean... He feels very Lex Luthor, who has vaults upon vaults upon vaults of secret shit to try and kill Superman. And, uh, yeah, it's just great. And I like that he has that alliteration. And, like, he may be the smartest man in the world, but on some level, he, like, something... He finds, like, pleasure in the simplistic, you know? (laughs) But John Conk... Well, he's not going to go quite yet, because Angela has a grandfather she's not aware of yet, and he and I have matters to discuss. And then we get this this scene where they're talking and he says, you know, you told me nothing ever ends, and I've been doing all of this, and was it worth it, and all of this. And essentially, John offers to send him to the paradise he made. Well, he... <laughs> Vite uses the word paradise, which ref- harkens back on how he said, when he first arrived at that manor, he thought it was paradise, and now he sees it's prison. Yeah, he basically takes him to Europa because he wants adoration, and these people are just desperate to worship someone. And, uh, you know, he will live out his fantasies as this beloved lord and everything. And, and I like that we know at this point that it's not worked out how he wants it to work yeah, out. I really like the idea, because he, he, he says how I wanted to make life, I wanted to make better life, that was more compassionate, more kind, and you think about what it's become, and and there's no war, and there's no violence, and you think about what we've seen it become, and, like, Ozymandias' presence turns it into a violent, twisted, sick world. But he's the one who's the cause of all of it. Like, <laughs> yeah, the only, yeah, yeah. only one there who has any sense of, kind of, like, freedom of will is the game warden, who we find out later on is the original Phillips. But every all the rest of them are like it's just him committing violence and convincing them to help him with whatever crazy scheme he's doing. Yeah, he will never be satisfied. So yeah, then we get the kind of uh, the proposal scene is is what you describe it as with Manhattan presenting the ring to to Angela to embed in his forehead, and you get him saying "I do" on one knee as <laughs> she pushes it into his head, and I sent you the shot of them illuminated by the window and it looks like the the, the figures in that Rorschach walks past a lot and we saw it on the wall uh, in episode one or two one of the two yeah. some fantastic callbacks to the comic and to the previous episodes of the TV show a lovely scene that shows how romantic they are and is also the kind of last of these flashbacks that we get until the conversation Dr. Manhattan will have yeah. in a moment we intercut with them doing this proposal and this very romantic tender scene we go back to the bar one last time and it's john creating an egg to prove that he can create life for angela and angela's not very impressed with this because it's not a chicken or anything like that it's just an egg and well it's also they're talking about will they have kids and he says how yes we'll have we'll have three children Mm. and she says oh will they be little half gods and he says i would never pass my abilities on to someone without their consent and she gets very interested by this comment is like oh is that something you can do can you give someone your powers and he said i could theoretically create matter that like if someone 
to were to ingest it, they would pass on. Yes, they would. They would gain my abilities. And she was like, "So you could fill that egg." If you fill that egg with your abilities, I could eat it and go walk on water. And uh, yeah, it links very nicely with Joaquin's plan to. <laughs> yeah, like we we <laughs> get Doctor Manhattan the, basically. Yeah, we get the idea that this is something that could happen, but yeah, and then from here, the ring gets the ring slash tunnel gets pushed into John's head, and we finally come back to where we ended the previous episode with John kind of floating above the room, glowing blue, now with Cal's face. Yeah, it's it makes sense because they've done a good job in that bar scene to he is still giving a great performance, but I don't think you can get infinite mileage out of that. At some point you need to show someone's eyes and face and it's hard to get around the fact that Yaya's facial structure is very different to how Doctor Manhattan is drawn and how Yaya he... is not a Jewish man. No, and yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah. And uh I guess they're just going with on some subconscious level. He's still sort of hazy and in the in between phase. So. Yeah, I think I think that's the like obviously all of this. He's very discombobulated for the entirety of this final scene. Like yeah. he he understands some stuff. We get he sees the clock that was shot during the White Knight, and this is when we get the kind of recontextualization of what happened in the White Knight with him teleporting the kid away, him not experiencing time linearly, apologizing to Angela about how infuriating it is. They, then you hear like, the kids start shouting for their father because someone is blue and floating on the pool outside. Um, <laughs> and he says, you need to see me do this. And... You need to see me do this, as he then teleports the children away. Yes. And Andrew is not happy about this. No. Interesting. I wonder if that will play into the finale. We know where the kids have gone because he says to her that I've, taken, I've sent them to your grandfather who's in the Dreamland Theatre in Tulsa, which is obviously where the mm. entire show started. But of course, Cal also, as you said, says, you need to see me walking on water. You need to, for whatever reason, you need to see yes. that I can do this. And lots of Jesus subtext in this. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and we get this. He went to see Will between seeing Vite and actually going through with the tunnel. And he's like, hi, I'm Dr. Manhattan, basically, and you're Hooded yeah. Justice, and you have a granddaughter. And he's like, no, I don't. He's like, well, you had a son, and she had a daughter. So, And it's all very... Like, Will is a character who, when we meet him, he is very combative and, you know, antagonistic, almost. And then you get him reframed as heroic. At times, he's funny. And in this scene, he's kind of, like, it's kind of irritable, and you're like, oh, you're not very nice. And it's like, you remember that this man was a very angry man, and between when we last saw him and when we will next see him, he's lost everything and he's just sort of stewing by himself in New York. And he's Yeah, had... like, he, we find out that he has accepted what no. was in Nelson Gardner's will, mm-hmm. been left to a friend, and he's obviously living, like, some, a quiet, retired life with presumably quite a lot of money that he's it's... got access to. And when Dr. Manhattan shows up, he, his immediate first thought is... Oh, you want me to be a superhero again? Let me go get my mask. It's like <laughs> sarcastic and like, yeah. I don't do that anymore. It ruined my life. And then he does his experiencing things all at once stuff. And he is talking to Angela and he is talking to Will. And she's like, Oh, you're talking to him now. Ask him how he knew that Judd was in Cyclops and was in the and had the KKK outfit in his wardrobe. And then he asks him and he's like, Who's Judd? And then the penny drops that Angela has just put the entire events of the show into motion by attracting Will to come back to Tulsa 
to give him that knowledge about the KKK uniform and we asked how could he have known that if he couldn't get into his house and he killed Judd and him being there and, and Manhattan being there and Angela being there, like it's all linked and it's all perfect. <laughs> yep. And yeah, it's just really, really good. And I, I do love that Will's reaction. That is me. Like you can so clearly tell he got no fucking clue mm-hmm. what any of this is, but he's immediately inspired. Like the thing that has been driving him was Cyclops and stopping this stuff in his life and obviously he stepped away from it now but knowing that this involves his granddaughter like his actual family it seems to inspire him more so yeah that she's gonna live there and this person is there so down i go yeah are we ever gonna get an explanation as to how he's a hundred fucking years old and so sprightly? i think i think he's just incredibly fit i think is the only way that you kind of (laughs) get around it but then what i love is they go from this incredibly in-depth conversation that kind of like changes your entire conception of how the show works Mm. And and the very explicit kind of reference to what came first, the chicken or the egg, and and <laughs> Doctor Manhattan goes, both happened at the same moment. To and, John and he, going, I'm hungry, <laughs> and they're just disappearing, and yeah, uh, and going to make some food, and then Angela's so pissed off that she, when he floats the eggs over to him, she just angrily throws them on the floor, and she breaks the eggs, and again, like the the importance of eggs for this episode uh, is what he was making, got his powers in it, and she's going to eat them, and then she's going to have his powers, and she needs to know she can walk on water, something along these lines also in all of this I forgot, the 7k are just sitting over the road waiting for her and she starts... yeah, like, like I just love that Doctor Manhattan just kind of goes and says, "Oh yeah, they've been out there the entire time. I've been having this conversation." Like, whilst it obviously it's very important to save the children because there's about to be a lot of gunfire, and have this conversation about we need to have this conversation with Will because this has already happened in the past, and it yeah. sets off everything that's about to happen on the show. And Angela's like, "This is not important. Saving your life." is the most important thing. Yeah. Well, he and says she... there are more important things that need to happen or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, but then she goes and busts out even more guns hidden in different places around the house. She's got a little safe behind her portrait by the wall. And, you know, he says that there's nothing that we can do. They've got a cannon that will teleport me against my will and can kill me, I think, essentially. And she then starts arming up and... He's like, this is the moment. This is the moment I fell in love with you. I just told you there's nothing you can do and you're going to try and save me anyway. And she's like, you've been with me for 10 years and this is the moment you fell in love with me. He's like, I was in love with you as soon as I met you. And she's like, yeah, 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 shut the fuck up. (laughs) But it's a beautiful little moment. It's cute and it it all fits around. And for a second I thought, oh, we're having our doomsday clock moment where someone has inspired him to finally take action because she goes out there and is hilariously outnumbered. Yeah, and she she does a good job at first, but then she runs out of bullets and the car just kind of stops and they shoot a giant fucking harpoon into the door and yank it off. (laughs) Yeah, and then John appears and murders the shit out of all of them. It's like, oh, her being like this has inspired him. It's like, no, you can see, like the cannon was very conspicuously framed behind him. I Yeah, I also (laughs) love that, like, very noticeably, she shoots the person on the cannon. He doesn't blow up that person's head. Yes. So, like, they, they even, like, set up in that way. Like, every other person has their head exploded, but the one person that she shoots is the one person that John potentially should have yeah. blown and, their head up. And off. she's like, there you go, you did it. And he's like, no. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, we see him very violently teleported with this red colouring effect. And he is so maddening, because, like, what if you just killed that dude? But I wouldn't. Yeah. But I didn't. But I didn't. And it's like, oh, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, and... 
then the episode ends with how exactly did Dr. Manhattan convince Angela to come for that meal with him? And they they have the conversation about how, like, ten years, like, I'd have some time afterwards. They, they have the conversation about, like, don't all relationships end in tragedy? Yes. And Angela kind of very flippantly goes, fuck it, why not? Like, why not take a chance on this? Like, it's only ten years of my life, or whatever. And <laughs> Well, and... I mean, she still would be in denial that it is actually ten years of her life. She's like, oh, fuck it, I'll have one, I'll, I will meet you again, yes. an interesting fucking person. It's all, it's so good. I find it difficult to, in the moment, say this was the best episode of the show or whatever, but this is probably the best episode of the show. Yeah, it's incredible episode television. And now, as always, mm. we finish these episodes with a discussion of what... Adrian Veidt was up to. Okay, so in episode 7 we have day, I think, 363 of the trial of, like, the people versus Adrian Veidt, a.k.a. Master, a.k.a. Ozymandias. And he looks so fucking bored. And how can this trial have lasted almost a full year? Because all of his scenes so far have ostensibly been one year apart, because the cakes have been brought to him, and they have one candle, two candles, three candles, etc., etc., and this is our next year between when the gamekeeper caught him and, and imprisoned him and everything. And he has offered no testimony. He is elected to defend himself. He has said nothing. And after the defense rests with their very impassioned speech about how thou shalt not leave. And then uh, his defense is a big giant fart. And yeah. we talked about how jokes are funny. Yeah, we talked about how Jeremy Irons is probably seeking something he's never done before. It's like, has he ever done fart acting before? <laughs> Let's find out. And I like the touch that like he's on trial for trying to leave, not for all of the murders that he's done. Like they're they're clearly pissed about all the violence. But he's kept killing us in his attempts to leave, and like that is the one commandment of this place. And But it's also like that wasn't something that was instilled in them by Dr. Manhattan. Mm. Like, Dr. Manhattan doesn't send him there and doesn't impose the rules like you're not allowed to leave. This isn't an imprisonment. This was a favour yeah. from Dr. Manhattan towards yeah. towards Adrian. So, like, where has this idea that he can't leave come from? Yeah, why does the gamekeeper think he can't leave? And uh, he, he brings in a load of pigs because it's unfair. You know, a jury of his peers, and none of these people are his peers. Here's a bunch of pigs. And uh, he finds him guilty, I believe. And then, in a post-credit scene of episode yeah. eight, our first one, our only one, our only one, he we see one by one the Phillipses and the Crookshankses are asking him, "Will you stay?" And he says no. And then they keep hitting him in the face with tomatoes. Then in his cell, the game warden brings him a six-year cake, and he's reading a book called Fog Dancer that is in the Peterpedia files and is. It's by the author of the guy that wrote the Black Freighter comic books. And it books. is referenced in the Watchmen comic. They do say he wrote the novel Fog Dancing. Okay. It, it's in that, in that thing. Like afterwards, he wrote the very successful novel. And obviously, there's it, the Peterpedia stuff says that like they have a yearly competition to try and summarise this book because it's so undefinable. Yes, and Petey's one is in there, and it's like shockingly metaphorical for the events of Watchmen and it gets into this thing of are the characters of this obsessed with this book because it sounds it rings true with their life or is something else going on because they say how Ozymandias called it the second best book ever written, Mothman was obsessed with it, the comedian from Rorschach had copies of it in their homes and Dr. Manhattan quoted it. Yeah, the last line of Dr. Manhattan in the original Watchmen is that nothing ever ends. Obviously this is not something that's canonical to the 
comic book. This is something they've made up for the show that nothing yeah. ever ends originates in Fog Dancing, but mm. it is a nice wrinkle to all of it yes. that having this quoted at Ozymandias. Yes. Is... But Ozzy is reading a copy of it in his little prison cell and he says he likes it because it's about loneliness and you wouldn't understand. And the gamekeeper is is like I was the very first one. I saw him create everything and then leave. So I do understand loneliness. And he, he says about how heaven isn't enough for you. And Ozzy says, heaven's not enough because heaven doesn't need me. And it's, you know, it's that he, he will never be satisfied. He wanted the adoration on earth. He wasn't getting it. So he's gone to a place where he is enveloped in adoration and that isn't enough for him because there's nothing here for him to fix. Like, everything is perfect. And he has to do something magnificent. And I guess it's similar to John. He has to, like, earn that praise. He doesn't want to just be beloved for no reason. And then in the cake is a horseshoe. And I still don't have a fucking clue what's going on with this horseshoe thing. Because he well, starts... Well, he, he uses it to start dig out. But, what? <laughs> yes. But, like... <laughs> Yes, he starts frantically digging at the floor like a madman with a shiny horseshoe, but that would take a very long time. And Some it... would say it would probably take about a year. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> is it just that thing of, like, the Phillipses are stupid and they're giving him a horseshoe instead of a knife for no real reason, and now well, one no, of them he has says, slipped he says, him a horseshoe? <laughs> he says in episode one, I don't need this yet. And obviously, ah. for whatever reason, the horseshoe is the horseshoe is needed now. Okay, right. So one of these Phillipses... I mean, the Phillipses seem to still be loyal to him on some level. I mean, they still continue to call him Master, but yeah. So one of them has ostensibly slipped him a horseshoe so he can dig his way out. And there's some fucking bullshit going on here. And like, will the D be Dr. Manhattan or Dan or someone else all together? I don't know, but we've seen. it seems like he's on a collision course with the main cast or the present day or possibly something that happens one day before the events of the show or some shit like that. But yeah, I think most of the pieces are in play now about what he's doing there and, and trying to leave. And yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll see how that all turns out. We will see how that... But I want the, the, the final touch of this is... So I love this episode, episode 8. I think it's a fantastic episode of television. Mm. It does annoy me in that the post credit scene kind of breaks the structural beauty <laughs> of the entire world where it's like no other episode is needed this. And I understand how there is no clean way to add in this particular scene into this episode. Where's well, my Just nine panel grid? <laughs> yeah, just like how there was no organic way to add in a, a scene on Europa into episode six. I feel like they had a very tough choice to make. And it was like, we can't have two episodes to go completely by without having these scenes in. Do you beef up some of the earlier ones where less substantial stuff is happening and then you risk getting rid of that delightful slow burn or do you try and rush some of this together? Do you do two in one of the episodes? Yeah, exactly. It, it's, and it's, it's tricky. Yeah, and that's and that's the thing. And obviously, like there is more Ozymandias content on Europa in the next episode, so they can't even just tag this onto the start of the next episode. But like I know Nicole Cassell has said, oh, it's like the back matter in the comic book, and it's like, I mean, it is sort of like the back matter in the comic book, but mm. it. But you already have back matter in the Peterpedia stuff, and if it was back matter, I'd rather you had a post credit sequence in every single episode. And and also, like I feel he, I don't know what he's gonna do in episode nine, but. Even if he does nothing in episode 9, he has more of a direct link to the narrative of the show than any of the Batmatter does with the events of the book. 
Yeah, I think like when when we talked about the movie and you quoted what I told you years ago about how what from the comic is in conversation with what comic books mean and what comic book language is and their cultural importance. What from the movie isn't talking about that stuff. It's not talking about comic book movies because the comic book movie as we know it in 2019 did not exist in 2009. Mm. And I don't even think this TV show is in conversation with other superhero TV shows or superhero movies from the last decade of Marvel's Ascendance. Mm. But and he also isn't in conversation with what television means and what television structure is other than a potential conversation with the graphic novel and the works of Damon Lindelof in that he knows how to write time travel and character focused episodes that feel like a comic book. Mm. But by putting this here, you immediately break the, (laughs) the beautiful structure that you had been kind of angling for before then and that's what kind of holds this back from being as much as I love this show, it holds it back from being the best thing with the Watchmen name attached to it is because it doesn't have that clockwork beauty layered in at all levels like the comic book does, where we're getting to that level on a plot level where everything's coming together and every single thing that they've been talking about and doing is coming together. But looking at the structure of the entire thing at the end... I feel the book is operating on like layers on layers on layers on layers and it's quite hard to compete with that. Even if you're outdoing it on some of those levels, it's just working on too many for you to keep up with. And like it's back matter is better than any of the other stuff that has been done in other projects and, and the the rigid structure of it and the metatextuality of it and, and all of that is just so hard to compete with. Like you would, and I feel in attempting to do that you would probably break it like trying to build a stack of cards and then it would all collapse on itself if you tried that hard to make it work yeah um, you'd need another like two years in the writer's room to make that part of it work probably yeah i can't i couldn't see like unless they started to make this explicitly in conversation with something like the dc television shows like flash and green arrow and stuff like that and have it be reacting to that genre of television. It's the only way you could have anything with the kind of cultural so a bit relevance. Sh- so a bit shit then. Like <laughs> that's the problem. Like we can talk about how, you know, the 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 comic was in discussion with other comics and like how the Watchmen movie there weren't movies like that yet. There are superhero T V shows but none of them are like this, really. I mean, no. I, this that, this the, is the full prestige. Yeah. Like, this is the first. This TV ha- this show has that's... more in common with normal glossy drama TV shows like True Detective and Fargo and all of that than it does with any superhero TV show. Yeah. I mean, again, like the the most interesting part is the ways that we can compare and contrast this to Damon Lindelof's previous work. In that there is leftovers DNA here. The episode about Doctor Manhattan taking place through time is very similar to The Constant, which is mm. probably the best episode of television that Damon Lindelof has ever penned. But if I did a top five, maybe this episode would end up in that top five of Damon and, Lindelof good good episodes of TV. Yeah, um, I, I don't have the level of recall of Lost that you obviously do. The constant means something to me when you say it, but but this is this is incredible, and uh, yeah, I'm very 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 sad. I've only got one left, which yeah, but so yeah, it, it's can, it's uh... it's a shame that this is over. It's a shame that like they're probably not going to be more of this. Mm. Like even even with other kind of tv shows that we could cover that there's always the idea that maybe they could do more but this is apparently nine episodes now yeah well while the tv show may be ending with nine episodes i've been told nothing ever ends 
except for this podcast, because it must end. Bye, everyone. Bye.